Well, go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing our time together in the Lord's Prayer this morning, embedded within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 15. Actually, what we're going to do this morning is pray the prayer together. Let's start out by doing that. Let's start out, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Let's pray this together this morning, and let's put our hearts in a place where we receive these words. We're going to see the bold, italicized part there. That's verse 11. That's what we're going to focus on, focus our time on this morning. So let's pray this. Pray this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So today, like I said, we're going to focus this morning on verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us as 21st century Christians? And what did it mean for Jesus' followers as they heard him instruct them how to, to pray within the Sermon on the Mount? The Bible gives us a a whole host of food metaphors. The Bible talks about food a lot. Um, And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. But it gives us a lot of food metaphors to describe our relationship, the relationship that God's people have with God himself. Uh, You remember last week, if you were here with us, we talked, we really keyed in on how at the core of who we are as a people, the core of who we are as a people who have desires, who have longings and who have achings for particular things in our, in our world. And when we desire things other than God himself, they represent desires that are, that are not misplaced necessarily, but are just too small. They're just desires that are, are too small. We want to have larger desires. As the people of God, we want to have larger desires, that, desires that can't be met with small, temporary things. We want to have big desires as a people, desires that only can be met by an infinite God who created us. And we find all that we are in him. So this morning, when we look at verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, the prayer takes a bit of a different shape. Jesus so far has instructed his followers to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now as we get here, it says the focus is shifted a bit onto give us this day our our daily bread. This is a request for something in our daily life as people. So Jesus uses this common biblical language discussing uh, by bringing up bread, right? He, he brings up bread here. Give us this day our daily bread. And nothing embodies, nothing brings about in our mind that idea better than food and drink. What do we need daily to survive? It is food and drink uh, that is most commonly, that, most common that comes to mind. Food and drink satiates in us something, uh, some desire that grows and grows throughout the day. Boy, I'm hungry right now because I did not eat breakfast this morning. I should have eaten breakfast. Hopefully I don't pass out up here. I'm saying that to you. That's not just a, yeah. We have tastes. I'm not going to pass out. We're good. We have tastes and we have, we have thirsts, right? We long for particular things. We get hungry for particular, for particular things. We want a steak or nephla soup or or tofu. I don't, I don't know what your thing is. Tofu, maybe? Anybody tofu? No? Okay. So, the, again, the Bible talks about this over and over again. Psalm, I'm just going to read you a few passages here. Psalm 34, 8 says, 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This idea of perception, perceiving God through the sense of taste, that we're satisfied in God. And he says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We did, Blaise just read for us Psalm 73, 26. He said, my flesh and my, the psalmist says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And John, in the Gospel of John, records Jesus talking about the fact that Jesus is the bread of life and that he is the living water. He says those two statements. He says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And then in John 6, 35, he says, he tells his disciples, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To drive this home, Psalm 63.1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is how our relationship with God is described throughout all of Scripture as something that should be the center of our, our strongest desires. God is the fullest satisfaction of our hunger and thirst, but he's also the source of our daily provision, the actual food that we eat, the actual water, the actual drink that we drink. So we want to walk through this request together. Really, there's just two things that I want to key on when we look at verse 11 this morning. Two things. One, God is the giver. God is the source. And then two, Christ is the Redeemer. That second one will flesh out a little bit as we, as we move along. Christ as the Redeemer. Give us this day our daily bread. So firstly then, God as the giver. And we've been exploring this verse in the Lord's Prayer. We need to first explore how, how faithless we are as a people. Because he, he's, he's requiring his disciples to... To, to request for daily provision, just how faithless we are. Okay, refrigerators and preservatives, those things are common in our world. Those were born out of faithlessness by people. Not that refrigerators and preservatives are bad. I once ate a Chick-fil-A sandwich from my desk at work that had sat there for two days, and I was fine. I didn't even get sick. It was cool. Everything was fine. Preservatives, great. That's a great thing. God gives, gave the command to Adam in the garden to creatively rule over creation. I think refrigerators and preservatives are a result of creative rule over, over creation. Now, maybe you're a no preservatives people, whatever, whatever. That's fine. We can talk about that later. So, again, not bad things, but these things, refrigerators, preservatives, whatever we put in our food can potentially undermine, or whatever we put our food into, can potentially undermine our faith in God who says that he is our source. They make it easy to believe that man is the provider of good gifts and not, not God. So we need to fight this mentality as God's people. In Jesus' time, bread wasn't a given, right? In Jesus' time, for Jesus' disciples, they would have seen or they would have heard Jesus tell them to pray this, and they would have thought to ourselves, yeah, absolutely, I don't know where my food's coming from today. Because they didn't have these things. They didn't have refrigerators or pantries or, 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 uh, or whatever it was that they needed. Their, their distribution methods were inefficient. Uh, they had disease and decay that would break things down right in front of their, right in front of their eyes. So there was this constant reliance on God that they had to have, especially for people who weren't well off, especially for people who didn't have means. They needed to have their needs provided for every day. 
In our world, we don't attribute our daily needs to God, but to the size, again, of our pantry or our refrigerator. I read an article this week at CNN Money. I just Googled it, whatever. Googled it, refrigerators. How many, what percentage of, of people, or households in America have a refrigerator? It's like, I mean, it's everybody, everybody. No, it's like almost 100, it's like 99.9% of households in America have a refrigerator. And then in that same article, in that article, it said that 25% of homes in America have multiple refrigerators. Like multiple refrigerators. And, it, and there was actually a section in that article with a header that said why Americans need two refrigerators. And actually laid out an, ar- uh, an argument for why Americans needed two, two refrigerators. Now, again, just a, the point is that it isn't wrong to have two fridges. Go ahead. Have five. I, it doesn't matter. But if you have five fridges, please come talk to me. I'd love to know who you are. That, that's, we, we might need to talk. But... Um, but if we do, right, if we do have these things, it's rarely that we see God as our provider when we always have something to eat or drink right at our fingertips. It's the reality of it. I regularly open the fridge, most of which is always stocked in our house home. Shelves, uh, of shelves and drawers and all of these things have food in them all of the time. And I open the drawer and I say, well, there's nothing to eat. And then I walk in and go sit back on the couch. It's insanity. It's, it's almost it's almost as clinical insanity. So the, the point here is resting in the promises of God that our every need will be provided for in him is much more difficult when it seems that our fridge is, is the thing that always gives us our daily bread and not God himself. So immediately as we consider again this text, immediately we must realize that Jesus tells his disciples to pray this. They have a much more developed idea of what it means to have their need to have their daily needs provided for. So we absolutely must, when we pray, give us this day and our daily bread, be in tune with the source of all things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. This is in the, the Cost of Discipleship. He says, The disciples realize that while it is a fruit of the earth, bread did not come down from a, or bread really comes down to, from above as a gift of God alone. This is why they have to ask for it before they take it. And since it is bread of God, it is new every day. They do not ask to lay up a store for the future, but are satisfied with what God gives them day by day. So whether you're pulling your food off a tree, whether you're pulling your food out of the ground, whether you're pulling out of the food out of a refrigerator, God is the source. That's what we need to realize as we pray this. God is the source of all things. So question then, question for us to practically think about in 21st century Jamestown, North Dakota, do we view God as the source of all that we have? Do we view God as the source of all we have? This is what Jesus wants his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Because by doing so, we're reorienting our minds, reorienting our minds away from grocery stores and fridges and onto God himself. Prayer is formative. We've said that multiple times as we've been in the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is formative. The reason Jesus tells his disciples to pray these specific words is because he knows that it's forming them, because it's shaping them. When they see, give us this day our daily bread, it moves their minds away from other empty sources, small, insignificant, dried-up wells that they think that they can draw living water from, but they cannot. Jesus wants to form, to shape his disciples by informing what they pray. So by praying, hallowed be your name earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, 
the Christ follower's aim moves slowly away from self-promotion. And we certainly could use a little bit more of that in a social media-saturated world. We certainly could move away from self-promotion. Self-promotion. That's a mantra of our culture. And by praying your kingdom come, like we looked at last week, by praying your kingdom come, your will be done, the focus moves away from developing our own kingdom and living in a kingdom that God has already established for us to live in. Developing our own kingdom is an exhausting work. Living in the one that God has for us is rest. And by praying, give us this day our daily bread, the focus shifts off of us and onto a God who provides for every need. And we say, that that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. Here's the problem. Our culture, again, we talked about it with refrigerators, lives in dramatic excesses. Our culture lives in dramatic excesses. And it tells you that the way to be happy is to live in dramatic excess. So some of you this morning are seriously consider giving away half of everything that you have. And you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I'm, I'm not. Remember that we talked about at the beginning of our time last week about a war that we're fighting. And oftentimes we're fighting it with sticks and rocks. We need to be equipped to go into it with swords and armor. Or we're scratching at gold mine deposits with our fingernails. When we need pickaxes, when we need shovels. And we oftentimes don't equip ourselves with those things because we see all of this stuff that's around us. We can't find a weapon or we can't find a tool to get the job done, to go into battle with or to go mine the the riches of God's word because we're so preoccupied with our stuff. And stuff is blinding us from seeing the weapons that we need to have, the tools that we need to have for the war that we're fighting, the mines that that we're digging in. So when I, when I started talking, so side note, first of all, side note, um, let's go down this. So the natural inclination for us as people is just to say, that's not me. That's not me. But the message of the Bible is that that's all of us. It's me up here. It's you out there. It's all of us. We're all in the same boat. We're going to throw our, all ourselves in the same pot here and say that this is all of us. This is literally all of us. You say, I'm not in love with my stuff or status or whatever, but if you're thinking that, this is 100% then for you. <laughs> This is 100% for you. You haven't let your guard down. And maybe haven't you, you haven't grappled with the fact that you're 100% at risk of losing the, loved, the things that you love in this world. I read this this morning in my, my Facebook feed. John Piper writes this. Over the years, it has struck me as strange how many Christians pursue wealth. Jesus warns that riches make it hard for people to get into heaven. And Paul warns that, these desire, that those who desire to be rich plunge into ruin and destruction. It's as though we either don't believe it or we think we'll be the exception to the rule or we just don't think God's word could mean what it says. This is us. We're in the pot. Okay, end side note. So Jesus tells, his, tells his, a story in, in Luke chapter 12 that should, I, I think, rattle our cage when we come to this idea. Give us this day our daily bread. I think this should really get in our heads and it should rattle around in there for a long time. Luke records Jesus saying this. This is Luke 12, 16 through 21. He says, And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Again, our culture lives in dramatic excesses, and it's at, we're at war with this culture. And we squirm a little bit when the topic of finances comes. I get it. It's awkward. It's weird. It feels strange. It doesn't feel great. Because, I mean, really, honestly, it, because our, our mentality or what our, again, our culture, what the world tells us is that you can't tell me what to do with my money. You remember that commercial like 10 years ago that was like, it's my money and I want it now. And there's just people yelling out windows. It's my money and I want it now. I don't even remember what it was for, but it was for something and it was just my money, I want it now. So don't check out here because we squirm for a reason, and it's opening a window to our heart. I think that's why this becomes a little bit awkward. If your treasure is anything on here, or here on earth, anything other than Jesus, if that's what you love, that's where your heart is, and it's the dangerous, a dangerous game to play. Jesus is going to say later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, he'll say where your treasure is. Actually, in chapter 6, at the, in verse 21, he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's the quickest, quickest way to identify our resistance to following Jesus is how we think about money. It's the quickest way to identify the, our resistance to following Jesus is the way that we think about money. It happened with the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 18, 16, 18, sorry. He shows up and, and Jesus says to him, Jesus, or he asks Jesus, he says, what do I need to do to gain eternal, to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, have you kept the law? He said, yeah, I kept the law. He said, okay, now turn around, go sell everything that you have and come follow me. And the man turns around and he doesn't do it. He walks away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because the rich man's, uh, his, his things, his stuff, his material, his wealth had blinded him to the truth of who God is in Jesus Christ. So if things that are subject to decay can break or be replaced or can be taken away, if those things are your treasure, then that's where your heart is, and you will decay right along with those things. Your soul will never find rest because there will always be something bigger and better in the here and now. And when your treasure is destroyed in the end, your soul is in jeopardy too. I just like to speak that really clearly to you this morning. When your treasure is destroyed in the end, your soul is in jeopardy of that too. You're playing a dangerous game. Therefore, the call, the admonition for all of us, what we need to do is magnify Jesus. We need to, we need to see Jesus as bigger and better than everything. Our sole our, our, our soul purpose as a body is to magnify Jesus, is to exalt the person of Jesus Christ and the great generosity with which he's been generous towards us, the great love with which he loved us. We need to make him our treasure, make him our treasure. Everything in this world will line up if we make Jesus our treasure. At the end of the passage from Luke 12, he warns up about laying up treasures and how that is opposite of what it means to be rich towards God. He just says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And at the end of the passage, right? At the end of that passage, he moves us to this idea Right? Where we think or where we in our culture have believed for so long that it's impossible to downsize. We can't downsize. Our society tells us that. You turn on HGTV for five minutes and you have a family complaining about 2,500 square feet and how their family of three can't, can't move around in the kitchen together. We say that we need more space. We need, this is 
what this man says in Luke chapter 12. We need bigger barns. That's the idea. But the Bible has a totally different message for us. Just stop buying what the world is selling. Nothing you can obtain here on earth can make you eternally happy. No amount of financial security can secure your soul. And that any desire that says it, that it says it can is small and pathetic and needs to grow into a desire that only God can meet, that only God can satisfy. So we need to ask ourselves this question in light of that earlier question. Do you believe that your eternity is secure and unwavering in Christ? Do you believe that your eternity is secure and unwavering in Christ? If that's the case... You should have no problem giving away the entirety of your retirement fund. You should have no problem downsizing your home as you add kids. People want to become empty nesters and then downsize. Why? Relying on God as your source means rejoicing in him no matter the size of your kitchen. The thought, boy, I'd like to have a bigger kitchen becomes, I haven't really thought about it because God has granted me so much in Christ. Why do I need a bigger, bigger kitchen? The size of my kitchen is completely irrelevant. And I'm not just talking about tiny house people here. I'm not talking about those people. Because all they've done is exchange the size of their kitchen for other selfish pursuits. Thanks, millennials. I, I, I'm a millennial. So I can say that. Other generations, no comments. Do you believe that your eternity is secure and unwavering in Christ? That is what give us this day our daily bread is supposed to shape our minds into. Last time we went down this path, I gave away something kind of large. So my wife is probably sweating a little bit. If, if I give away something else large, I think we might put a little strain on our marriage. So we're not going to do that this morning. Friends, you... You might ask yourself, what excesses am I living in and how are they blinding me from the fact that all I need is Jesus? Am I living like God is my source or is my bigger barn where I find my hope? And generous hearts come as a result that God is our source. Generous hearts come as a result that God is our source, that he will give us our daily bread. We don't live by faith making, by making sure that we have a throw pillow that says faith on it. We live by faith because we acknowledge that God knows all our needs before we ask him. We live by faith by acknowledging that God is our source. And here's the correct response to the idea that God is our source. Don't miss this. Here's the correct response. This is the biblical response to understanding that God is our source. Start praying right here, verse 11 of chapter 6 of Matthew Give us this day our daily bread. Start praying that. Correct response. Give us this day our daily bread. And then immediately be generous with all that you have. Give freely. Don't be withholding. Nothing is off limits. Proverbs 11, 20, 24 says, Only, or One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and he only suffers want. The reason you think you need more is because you're stingy. The reason you think you need more is because you're stingy. The reason you're stingy is because you have a small understanding of who God is and your relationship with him is similar to a child who comes to his parent only when he needs something. Those who are parents, I, I want my kids to come to me for more than just a $20 bill. Friends, we have to grow. 
We need to become more enthralled with who God is. And our desires must grow from a place where they can be filled with temporary earthly things to a place where they can only be filled with God himself, eternal, unchanging, our Father who knows our needs better than we do. And the Bible goes on and on and on and on about this. But we dispassionately care for people. Or maybe we just ignore them altogether. Or we joylessly toss some cash in the basket on our way out the door, whatever's in the wallet. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says in chapter 9, verses 6 through 11, he says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will pr- produce thanksgiving to God. We like that whole, we like in that, embedded within that, we like each one must give as he's decided in his own heart. And then we say that whole 10% tithe thing, that's another Old Testament thing, not really relevant to us. And then we get caught up in, should, which percentage should I give? Should I, should I tithe of my net or my gross income? I don't know. What is it? And I'm here to tell you this morning that those questions aren't bad questions. They're just the wrong ones. You can't figure that out in your own conscience. Go home. Figure it out in your own conscience. If it's stressing you out, you probably got the wrong answer. The question we should be asking is, how can I give more? How can I show that my security isn't found in what I have and in my barns, but the source of all things? We don't give because we do, we don't give because we don't have faith. And we don't have faith because we don't give. It might be a little circular. And God demands that his people give so that he can prove himself faithful. Malachi 3:10 says this: Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open the windows of heaven, and if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And when God says what he does through Malachi and through Paul, he says so with not a getting rich here on earth mindset, but with himself as the ultimate aim, with God himself as the ultimate aim, the highest blessing, the greatest treasure. You say, I can't afford to give sacrificially, then it wouldn't be sacrificial. 10%, that's a lot of money. That's the point. The point is that it's a lot of money. But God says you can't afford not to do this. I'm going to enrich your life in ways that you cannot imagine. I'm going to meet all your needs in totally unexpected ways. I'm going to grant you peace in financial hardship. I'm going to grant you contentment in your anxiety. I'm going to grant you everything in your wanting grant you satisfaction in your hunger. We can't afford not to be generous. You can't afford to be stingy and withholding. You say, well, I don't have the money right now, but I'll give in other ways with my time or whatever. Let's avoid negotiating with God because that's what that is. You're not negotiating with me as pastor. You're negotiating with God. I'll obey you over here for now and then over here later is not a well-thought-out strategy for the Christian life. It's not. 
I'll be straight with you. So what we need to do is pray that God would give us this day our daily bread and put our faith in God by actively removing the obstacles that we're relying on for our daily provision that is not God himself. So God is the giver. He is our source. Give us this day our daily bread forms us into a people who rely on God for all that we have. Okay, so I said earlier, God is giver, right? God is giver is our first idea coming out of this text. The next point is, is a bit of a shift in our mind. Christ is our redeemer. Christ is our redeemer. How does this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, point us to Christ as redeemer? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, he says that Christ is our redemption, along with other things. And one often neglected aspect of our Bible reading and study together is that God is bringing all of human history together. We're going to get a real big picture here because this is important. It's where we're embedded. He's orchestrating all things to bring about his purpose. This is what we call redemptive history. What is God doing throughout all of history to bring about his purposes here on earth? All of the Bible is intertwined together in bringing us a portrait of redemptive history. This is the story about how God has brought about redemption for his people to set about a part of people for his own possession, like Peter says. And all of scripture is pointing us to this grand narrative that God is authoring, and we're caught up in it. So there's really four aspects to this, four things that, that are important to see throughout all of Scripture. First is just creation. God created the world. He created it and it operated for two chapters in Genesis the way he intended it to. For two chapters in Genesis, it operates the way that he intends it to, everything working according to the way that he set forth. Second thing is just fall. In chapter 3 of Genesis, everything goes haywire. Sinners the world and disrupts the way that things are meant to work because Adam and Eve's rebellious choice in the garden. They rebel. They eat of the fruit that's forbidden to them. Sin enters the world. Separation from God. And then a whole big chunk of text all the way up until the last two chapters of the Bible is all about how God is redeeming his people. How is he going to redeem his people? How is he going to buy them back from sin and death? That's called redemption. And then at the very end, in the very end of Revelation, restoration. And this is something that's coming for us in the future. It hasn't already occurred. It's coming for us in the future. If we've trusted Jesus, this is coming. You know, the way, and everything is going to be restored to the way that, uh, that God originally set it out in creation. And we'll get a new body that matches our new nature that Jesus granted us on the cross. And we'll live in perfect relationship with God for all of eternity. That's what's coming. That's what we get. That's where we hope. That's where, why we have faith in God because he's promised that that's coming and he's done everything already up until this point in human history to make sure that that is coming about perfectly. Totally faithful. So the prayer then, give us this day our daily bread, points us to Christ as our redeemer because at every stage, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, at every stage, those things happen around food. They do. God created this immaculate garden and put Adam in charge of it. He said, eat from anything in it except for that one tree. He said, eat from it, anything but that one tree. And he gave Adam Eve, who was charged with helping Adam uphold the command. And the fall then, the disobedience that comes, it comes through eating. It comes through eating the fruit that was forbidden. 
And then we have this foreshadowing of redemption in Christ. This, this wonderful picture that's given to us in the book of Exodus where God delivers an entire nation, the entire nation of Israel, out of slavery. He brings them up out of Egypt and it's commemorated by a meal, by the Passover. And then, and then, not only that, not only the nation of Israel, but all peoples are restored, are brought out of slavery to sin because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We were brought out of sin, brought into marvelous light, and we commemorate that with a meal. We do it here, Lord's Supper. We do it here regularly. Just keep on eating. And then in restoration, right? Restoration, what's coming. Because we've been delivered out of sin and death. And because we will at one point finally be restored into what God has intended. He has invited us if you're in Christ, you've received this blood-soaked invitation. You are invited to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will sit around and we will feast. And we will praise God for all that he is and all that he's done for us and the fact that he is our true source for everything. And Jesus made this all possible. So give us this day our daily bread means... That our daily provision is, or our daily needs are provided for. Provision is made through God himself. But also an acknowledgement that God is the source. And that God purchased us back from slavery to sin and death. Give us this day our daily bread. When we eat, we do so in such a, in our culture we talked about this, we do such a blah, unremarkable way. It is such an unremarkable thing, our mealtimes. Yet when we eat, we should be reminded of God's intention in creation, our rebelliousness, Christ's work of redemption, and the restoration that's coming to each and every one of us who's in Christ Jesus. And so, conclusion, that we have these two ideas, right? Two kind of different, very different ideas that are contained in this text. In conclusion, just this, God is our source and our strength, right? God is our giver. And Jesus wants us to pray, give us this day our daily bread because he wants us to see that, the, all the, that, that all the way to our purpose and our identity down to the very things we eat and drink are totally reliant on the Heavenly Father. We find who we are in him. We find what we have and eat in him. Do I smell popcorn? Yeah. No kidding. Thank you, people out there making popcorn. This is a statement of dependence, right? Give us this day, day our daily bread is a statement of dependence. How do we develop our understanding of what it means to depend on God? Friends, realize that our culture is one that has no idea what it means to be dependent. The Christian life is summed up in dependence. It is. The Christian life is summed up in dependence. You don't create your identity. It's given to you in Christ. You're dependent on God for who you are. You don't create your purpose. It's given to you in Christ. You depend on God for what you do. You don't make a life for yourself. It's given to you in Christ. You're dependent on God for all your needs, smallest to greatest. Someone said to me, he's in this room, I think. Someone said to me that we live in a cowboy culture. 
in North Dakota. We live in a cowboy culture. Here's what I mean. Everyone is trying to prove that they don't need anyone else all of the time. Men, we're, we're like this. We're manly men. Right? It's in our DNA. We stand up to everyone and we say, I could do this myself. And we isolate ourselves because we feel threatened easier than we feel encouraged. Because we're waist high in the comparisons we're always making with others. Or because we think that we could have done it better, or if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Cowboy culture is the opposite of gospel culture. Being independent in some senses is actually harming our ability to see all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Gospel culture says, I can do nothing apart from God. I'm totally dependent on him for my salvation, for who I am, for what I do, and even the smallest, most insignificant of needs, my daily bread. And our culture that is centered on the gospel expresses itself by being dependent on one another. We must be ready and willing to care for one another and help others no matter where we find ourselves. We will not make lasting impact in our community if we remain isolated. Get involved in the life of the local church. Care for and be dependent on each other. You're open up. We need to open up in the context of community group. You're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling anybody. Be dependent on others. By doing so, you'll show that you're dependent on God. Well, I don't like settings like that. Why don't you answer the statement? It will always be the answer to the statement. I don't like settings like this is it's not about you. I just don't get anything out of it. That's because you're preoccupied with yourself. If you show up to community group or Sunday morning or just random run-ins with people throughout the week, and if you commit to bless others by listening well and offering help and encouragement and being open to help and encouragement, you will get something out of it. Your life will be enriched in ways that you can't imagine because it will be an expression of the dependence that you have on God. This is guaranteed. And in the gospel, we find how our greatest needs are met. In the gospel, we find how our greatest needs are met. Friends, Jesus Christ is the only way that we can be saved. There is no other way. There's not an okay alternative. There's not a slightly less profitable exchange that can happen. Jesus Christ is the only way that we can be saved. If we're trusting anything, if we're trusting ourselves, if we're trusting personal resources to get us through a day-to-day, then it's going to be really hard to see your need for a Savior. I'm just not that bad of a person. I try really hard. The Bible makes it clear prior to Christ you were dead. Your sin had separated you from God and there was no hope for you in this world. But in Christ, you were made alive. You were restored to life. You've been raised with Christ. And that means that you're dying to your old self. You must repent of your desires to be independent and become fully dependent on God. There is no other way. A message of personal independence is your enemy. And the enemy wants to speak that to you. He wants to say, you can do this by yourself. You're all good. Complete dependence on God is the ground on which the gospel takes root and we as humans grow and flourish. God fully intends for us to rely on nothing but him and in him, in that, in our full reliance on him, we glorify him. So we give everything else away. Remove it from pulling at your heart and steering you in the wrong direction. 
lose your life, your self-determined identity, your small desires, your man-made purposes. Why do we come together? Why does the local church exist? We say this all the time. We are God's people set apart for God's purpose to carry out God's mission here on earth. Do you know that God wants to shape us? The way in which he wants to do that is through each other. He gives us his word. We can go to it. We can, he gives us these prayers. We can pray them. We can be shaped. You know, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we, we covenant together as a people to love one another, to care for one another, to admit dependence on one another. This is how God shapes us. This is a primary way in which God shapes us into the people that he wants us to be in 2017, almost 2018, in Jamestown, North Dakota. Bible-saturated, prayer-soaked, mission-minded, completely dependent creatures living life together. So we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel. And in order to do that, we must, without exception, rely on one another. Men, don't be a cowboy. <laughs> don't be a cowboy. Don't, don't turn down help and isolate yourself. Depend on one another. Don't subscribe to a worldly machoism that demands independence. Women, don't make social media comparisons. Don't do that. My house doesn't look like Pinterest, house, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm not measuring up. Depend on one another. Don't subscribe to worldly comparisons that demand a particular product. Exist for others. Make your struggles known to each other. Confess your sin to one another. Say, I'm really having a tough time here. Open up. Be honest. Be prepared to listen and to encourage one another. All this we see by praying, give us this day our daily bread. And if Jesus is the source, if God is the source of all things, then we can do nothing but respond in generosity. There is, there is no other option. We can do nothing but, re, but respond in generosity because we see that God has cared for us in such a deep way that even at the very, the very smallest level, our needs are provided for. Give us this day our daily bread opens up our world into a world where no longer are we at the center, but just like the previous two verses where we prayed, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just as those statements are all about God, so give us this day our daily bread is all about God. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know what this is about, if you're wondering, well, how on earth am I supposed to be find satisfaction in God? The answer is through Jesus Christ. He came to earth. He died. He lived a life that, that was perfect. There's one person throughout human history who didn't deserve to die. It was Jesus Christ. His life was perfect, a sinless life, perfect example for us. He died a death that he didn't deserve, as if he sinned. We sang that earlier. As if he sinned. In our place, he took the sin of the world upon himself, and he was crushed by it. But that didn't end the story. He went into the grave. He rose again. He defeated that death. And he's invited us to have the same. To spend eternity in his presence with God the Father. To have right relationship restored with him 100%. No caveats. And all we need to do is respond in repentance and faith and say, yes, I am I am." putting my faith in Jesus Christ that at the end I will spend eternity in God's presence. That's all he requires. And then he demands your life. He demands that we live our lives in complete obedience because he gives us the power to do so in the spirit of Christ.
same spirit that brought him up out of the grave, dwells in us. As those who are in Christ, we have that same spirit inside of us. No exceptions. If you're in Christ, you have it. This is incredibly important. If you don't know what that's about, come seek one of us out up front. We'd love to talk with you more about it. But right now, let's pray. And we'll sing together one more song and we'll be done.